So I am testing out the microphone right now. Test, test, test. It seems like we have contact. Greetings. Welcome to Calvary Christian Fellowship. It is time. We're actually getting started on time tonight. So welcome those listening in. Uh, we are, um, we, do we do what? Yeah, exactly. We have no technical difficulties tonight. So this is like wonders of wonders. And um, I'm going to start off with a, actually a miracle testimony um, uh, that, that happened to me yesterday. Um, and then we'll actually let's open in prayer first, then I'll give testimony and uh, then we'll get into it. So, Father, we bless you. We lift this evening before you. We thank you as we are 
spending these last few weeks winding down in the study of this book, may it may it not wind down in us, but stir up in us. May it wind up in us. May we be encouraged by your word. Help me, Lord, to uh, to speak and share those things that are on your heart concerning uh, what we open up and see in your word. And Father, we know your word's a mirror, and we pray that as we study it and, and think about it, contemplate it, um, meditate on it, share it, that we would not be the same after we've looked into that mirror than we were before. And that by the anointing of your spirit in our lives, the transformation in your word would accomplish its purposes in us and through us in the world in Jesus name. Amen. All right. So um, I have um, uh, I've been seeing ophthalmologists for my eyes uh, for several years. And here recently, um, the uh, short version is um, in the front chamber of the eye where fluid builds up before you know you got the you got the very front part of your eye and then the lens that's behind that there's a chamber there but has fluid in it and it drains well because of things going on behind that um it's it's it was growing inside my eyes which is just normal stuff that happens um but it was pushing the the chamber forward increasing my pressures and they were we were every four months having to watch it um uh or I would need a procedure, and the problem is, is that, is that it can go from literally um, not good to like on the floor, doubled over in pain. So yeah, um, and so the procedure would be to um, just put a slight, you know, twenty thirty second slight laser incision in it, so it has a place to drain and relieve the pressure. Okay, and um, normally that's done in procedures and things you have as you get older, anyway. Um, but I was been going back and they were watching it, going back and watching it. Well, I went in yesterday morning for was it yesterday? What's today? Two days ago, Monday morning? No, it's Tuesday morning. Went in Tuesday morning uh, to ophthalmologist and um, he's studying my eyes, looking at my eyes. He goes, and, and literally three months ago, he's telling me you should really consider having this procedure done now. You know, we can keep looking at it every three months, if you like, or every four months, and just checking it and watching it. But you should, you should get this done now. He went in, he looks at my eye. He goes, "Oh my goodness, just your pressures are amazing." He goes, "Right now, I see zero percent of chance you need this. <laughs> zero. I said, "I'm like, uh, doc. Last time you said I needed to have this now, and you're saying it's gone." He goes, "Yeah, it's gone." No problems. We'll try. come back in April. We'll look at it then. So, yeah, I'm like, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> really glad I didn't have the procedure done. And uh, so, anyway, there's that's my testimony. I'm sticking to it. Um, anybody else have a quick testimony they want to give before we get started? Oh, you did. Sweet, sweet. Good, good, good. Yeah. All right. So very grateful, very, very grateful for all those who were praying for us this weekend. I really, truly appreciated it. I feel like we got um, some uh, really good um, overall uh, vision and direction. So, um, uh, you know, now, now's, now's the details. <laughs> now's the grind. So uh, we're grateful. Hey, guys. All right. So. 
We are in, oh, where's my clicker? Hold on one second. I'm all set to go and I don't have my clicker. I'm assuming you actually want to follow along on the slides. So I mean, that's a big assumption. But <clears throat> All right. Um, let's see. There we go. All right, so we're in the book of Daniel. We're on the fi- final three chapters, chapters 10 through 12. Um, again, uh, I said this earlier, we'll, we'll have a couple of major subjects we're going to touch on tonight and then probably finish up next week. Um, and uh, so um, at main source and, and the work we've been doing is Dr. Wendy Witter's uh, work through Lagos um, Mobile Ed. highly recommend her um, commentary on this if someone would like to get a hold of the commentary. Uh, brought in a few weeks ago. I can bring it again if you want to look at it. A brand, brand spanking new commentary just came out on it. Really good. Um, so uh, the theology of Daniel, as we've been talking about, this is all about God as being so- God is sovereign. Um, you know, and, and, and why is the book written to tell us about God's sovereignty? Because you, they're, they're dealing with exile. They're dealing with hard times. And, and now we're beyond exile. Now we're back in the land, and we're dealing with the fact that literally entire armies are going to be fighting over the land. Huh. wonder when that stops happening. Anyway, entire armies are going to be fighting over the land, and, um, and, and all kinds of persecution and things going on in the land. And so what's the natural question? God, where are you? God, why? And so the second part of the theology of the book is that God does not stop caring for his people. It doesn't matter what it looks like from the outside, the way that people are operating. God has continuing care for his people in spite of what the world does. In fact, he even ultimately uses their evil intentions against himself. And so this is where we get scriptures like Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. This is where we get scriptures like Genesis, the, the last chapter of Genesis, when Joseph says, "You, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And so this is part of the theology of the book. And so finally, the way we learn that is through story. And so there's these stories that are told over and over again. And this is where we learn, quite frankly, it's the way we learn most things effectively. Why do you think Hollywood uses it? Why do you think the the music industry uses it? Why do you think it's what's on our TVs and what's coming out of, of our computers and what's on, on the mass media in the world? Because we learn through story. Story moves us emotionally as well as um, informs us. And so the scripture powerfully uses narrative and story. And so these are the three points of theology. We've been following Dr. John Lennox's division of the book we moved, um, you know, uh, for the overall. Now, for, okay, so for 33 points, there is a subdivision in this book within it. Anybody remember what that subdivision is? It's based on something very specific. There's a change that happens after chapter 1. Language. It's based on language. We got Hebrew starting in chapter one, and we it doesn't turn back to Hebrew until chapter eight. And so we get these six chapters, yeah, six chapters from two through seven, that are in Aramaic. Now that Aramaic that Aramaic section it has a certain structure to it. What 
type, what is the name of that structure? I heard somebody say it earlier. Name of that structure that the Aramaic section is in. Chiastic, chiastic. So I'm hearing it in stereo now. That's right. Chiastic structure. So 33 points each. Um, uh, that's right. And so these are structures within structures. And there's even more as we've gone through. You can go back and review. But, but overall, the book we've been following has kind of a part A and a part B. We get the Babylonian court. We get the Medo-Persian court. We get two images uh, of the, the dream image and the golden image. We get two visions of beasts, the four beasts and the two beasts. We get two bi- kings disciplined, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar. And Belshazzar, remember, is a type and shadow of the Antichrist, the evil rulers that we're going to see all throughout history, that we, that we even see in the world today. And we talked about it at length last week. And then we get two writings explain, explained. One was the the prophecies of Jeremiah and other prophecies included in that, you know, Isaiah and some of the other prophets. Um, But there's also this writing of truth where this divine being literally comes and gives Daniel the writing of truth, this prophetic word um, that we've been discussing the last few weeks. All right. So in this section, it's the longest section, 10 through 12. It's the longest literary section which means it's telling us something. It's telling us it's hugely important. It's telling us uh, what Daniel has to go through to get it, and 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 what the how he has to, he himself has to be prepared to hear it. And he's you know he's fasting. He's encountering this divine man. He's overwhelmed. He's weak. He's trembling. He falls on his face. There's pain in his body. He's no strength. There's no breath. He's trembling. This isn't a you know, we think of spiritual experiences like being on mountain highs. He's having an ultimate spiritual experience, and it's physically uh, 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 um, suffering to do this. There's physical suffering going on in the midst of this. And so this, this section outlines with a prologue. It's the vision report. We're in the middle of this vision report, an epilogue. Hopefully next week we'll get to the epilogue. So we're going to uh, be dealing with the, the next portion of the, the vision report tonight. And we and and the, 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 this book is this section is also fascinating because we get this rare glimpse into spiritual warfare, unlike anywhere else in the scripture. We, we see, you know, we're, we're familiar from with Paul, with powers, principalities, we're all throughout the New Testament, thrones, lords, elemental spirits. This language that's used, but here we come, we come uh, into the report of a principality over Persia, the prince of Persia. We come to Michael battling it out with him somehow come to this divine divine being battling out this real spiritual war that's going on and what what we learn from it is this that while things are going on in the physical world there are things that are going on in the spiritual world and there is a correlation between the two which is why paul says we don't wrestle with flesh and blood our fight is not with flesh and blood. This is one of the things we need to walk away from this book taking because we're going to experience all kinds of things in flesh and blood. But ultimately what we are experiencing, the, 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 the force behind these things is spiritual. There's, there's rulers, there's authorities, there's cosmic powers over, of darkness, there's spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And these are not low-level demons. These are high-level intelligent evil who have schemes that they're carrying out, but that ultimately God remains sovereign. Ultimately, he cares for us. Ultimately, when we understand this, we bring a walk in this spiritual battle by bringing the kingdom of God on earth as his vessels. 
Um, and so our, our task isn't to know all the details of how that operates. Our task is to be obedient to what he's called us to, knowing that by so doing, we are actually doing things in the spirit as well as in the physical. All right, so this messenger had, had five areas of message, and we're in the very last one, the king who exalts himself. That's where we are tonight. So it, it went from Persia to Greece to Egypt and Syria to Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes. And if you notice, you got one verse on Persia. you got two verses on Greece. you got 5 to 20 on Egypt and Syria. And you got 21 through 35 on Antiochus the Fourth. Every section gets longer and bigger. There's more information that's being told. And, and, and so the other thing that we noticed when we read through this text is all of the verses dealing with Persia all the way down through verse 35, dealing with Antiochus, the fourth epiphanies. I mean, literally, the overwhelming detail that, that is given to us in the book of Dan, you can literally open it up. You can open up a history book, and you can put, this is this person, this is this person, this is this person, this is this person. Hugely detailed. It's, it's clearer than any other prophecy in all of Scripture. It's very, very uh, detailed to the minutia of what happens. Um, uh, yes, some of it's symbolic language, but the symbolic language is, has, ties directly to historical events. So much so, there are many scholars, both believing and unbelieving scholars, who think that at, at very minimum this part is something called ex eventu prophecy, meaning after the fact. That what Daniel is doing is writing something that after it already happened, um, making it look like prophecy. Um, which is a genre at the time. There are writings at the time that are like that. However, however, we get to this last section that we've been dealing with. This king who exalts himself from, from verse 36 all the way to verse 4 of chapter 12, verse 36 of, um, of chapter 11 all the way, is this, and this doesn't fit the past. This doesn't fit, you know, this doesn't fit Antiochus. And a lot of people think, well, he's still talking about Antiochus the fourth epiphany. He's just got it wrong. Did he? Did he? Which is why we spent so much time last time getting together examining who? Antichrist. 52 points right there. That's a good one. 52 points. So, yes, that, that there was this transition from king of the north, Syria, king of the, 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 the Seleucids, king of the south, the Ptolemies, um, in Egypt, battling it out over Israel, and Israel experiencing all the tyranny because of that, all the persecution because of that, and then out of the midst of all this battle between these kings, this this horrible usurper of the throne comes up, Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes, massively and and in and in the most denigrating ways persecutes the Jews, sets up a a a, a a, a statue of Zeus in the temple, stops the sacrifices, stops circumcision, stops keeping Sabbath, kills those to, and, and in horrible ways who, um, who refuse to stop it, uh, sacrifices pigs in the temple. I mean, he just completely, the abomination of desolation. And, and so we get this pattern of these evil leaders from Belshazzar to, um, to the little horn in chapter 7, to the little horn in chapter 8, to the... To, um, to Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes, and and then all of a sudden we get this king who exalts himself, and we spent a lot of time talking that this was not simply a picture of something in the past, but this is someone in the future, and so 
I just covered like 30 slides and telling you all that on that one slide because I want to get to the stuff we need to get to tonight. Um, all right. So let me see where I want to go here. So we we went through all this. got to the king who exalts himself here and so this guy he's larger than life this language in here it's using cosmic language so it's using language um, that's spiritual as well right he exalts himself to the the very person of God himself Um, and the king shall do as he wills he shall exalt himself magnify himself above every God he shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods he shall prosper Till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. And so he's going to look very successful, and to, he will be successful to a measure. Darkness goes to a point, and then God stops it, and not done. You know, you have darkness to a point, and then the sun comes up. The sea comes to a point, and then there's land. God stops chaos. Chaos comes to a point, and then he says, that's enough, no more. Um, and this is the, the the flood existed, and then it stopped, and it and it uh, uh, abated. Um, so we get this unusual use of the king. It's not the king of the north. It's not the king of the south. It, it's a uh, uh, it's a it's a different person. We're talking about the time of the end. Um, uh, we're 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 talking about coming wrath. We're talking about final spiritual warfare battle. Um, and then we get this reference to the book of life. So we spent all this time talking about this, and all of a sudden we get this reference to the book of life. And this is where I want to get to. This is where I want to start tonight. Let's kind of pick up where we left off. So this is what it says in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. It says, this, at this time, at that time, shall arise Michael. Who was Michael? The archangel. And, and what nation did he represent? Israel, that's right. This is the prince of Israel, the spiritual being that that fights spiritual battles on behalf of Israel. It's an archangel, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book of life. How many would like to know what's in that book? Anybody interested in that book? You should be interested in that book. You should should very personally be interested in that book. Let me put it that way. So um, uh, we covered covered all this. Um, So we get this progression that's going on. Uh, The book progresses from bad to worse to worse, from exile under Nebuchadnezzar to the rebellious king Belshazzar to the great terrifying beast who tramples everything to the little horn who is even more horrible and evil. And then the New Testament picks up on this idea, and it goes beyond that this evil king, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, it comes to the lawless one, to the Antichrist. Um, The scripture goes beyond the book of Daniel, but it borrows from Daniel to describe more than a king of the past, but something in the future. And that's what we covered when we talked about Antichrist. I'm going to go past all that right now. 
And I, this is, um, I did not go into this last time, I don't think. Yeah. Yeah, I want to go into this because this is going to take us right into the Lamb's Book of Life. We did cover this, but not not this, not in this way. All right. So now we're going to transition. Notice how Daniel, chapter 12, I mean, uh, yeah, verse 1, talked about the time of the end, talked about this great tribulation, talked about the lawless one, talked about his destruction, the deliverance of God's people, and talks about the, the book of life. Now, the reason why I want to mention that is what goes on in the New Testament is over and over in the New Testament is imagery that you get from the Old Testament is taken and then expanded. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at an ex- expanded passage in the book of Revelation, and I want you to see how many images that we've been studying as we've been going through Daniel that you can pick up that, that, that John is using to, to try to explain to us the revelation he had and the vision he had. He's borrowing from Daniel and all this imagery, all these things he's learning, he's expressing it to us. Now, why am I doing this? Because... Because all the time you get people say, well, you know, you can't understand the book of Revelation. It's all symbolism and everything. Well, they understood it. John understood it when he wrote it. They understood it when he first read it. Why? Because they knew the Old Testament. They knew the imagery and where it came from. Well, that guess what? Now we do. Now we do. We've been studying it. And so as we go into this passage, and it's going to take us into our, one of our first of our two motifs tonight I want to get into. We're going to get into a motif of the Lamb's Book of Life, and we're going to get into the motif of resurrection, because both of these come up in Daniel. All right. So this is in chapter 13 of the book of Revelation. And book of Revelation operates similar to the chiastic structure in Daniel, where the middle is, the, is, is your thesis. Revelation, same way. The middle is the thesis where we see Jesus conquering and, and, and this battle and war that comes as a result. And this is talking about this battle and war. It says, I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. Now, how many can recognize anything from the book of Daniel in that? Horns? What else? Multiple heads? How about a horrible beast coming out of the sea? Remember the fourth beast? You had the the lion, the leopard, the bear, and the beast. The horrible beast coming out of the sea. And what was it? It was blasphemous. Remember it being blasphemous? So this is a picture. And by the way, this is a picture of, this picture goes all the way back to the the ancient pagan um, uh, 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 creation stories. And, and, and it's a polemic against uh, these pagan um, uh, creation stories, this Leviathan, this sea beast. And so he's pictured here um, as this one who is opposed to God. And the beast that I saw, like a what? A leopard. Like a what? A leopard. And its feet like a what? A bear. Its mouth like a what? A lion. Where do we do all that imagery? Where do we read about all that imagery? You see, it's borrowing from this imagery. Is it now? We make a mistake. We make a mistake because we come out of the Enlightenment, and out of the Enlightenment, we're like entirely left-brained, right? And left-brained want all the details to match up perfectly. 
But what we're trying to get to is meaning. And meaning doesn't come from the left brain. It comes from the right brain. And that's when you're looking at it holistically. That's when you're putting all the pieces together. Don't sit here and go, well, how was this leopard, that leopard? and how? No, it's what did we see? Got these beasts rising up out of the water in Daniel who were bringing chaos, who were bringing evil, ultimately this other beast. And so we get this beast here again, right? John sees this vision, this antichrist vision as a beast. And all of these components of worldly domination that we read about in Daniel are brought into it. There's a holistic way of seeing this and understanding this. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. Who is the dragon in Scripture? Satan. Lucifer, the devil, gives his authority. Does this, there should be another picture that should come to your mind the moment the devil just gave somebody authority over the earth. Where did the devil try to give authority before? Jesus! Temptation! In the wilderness, he took Jesus to a high place, showed him all the kingdoms of the world. He says, bow down to me. I'll give them to you. What does the beast do? Bow down to him. What does he do? Give him authority. Do you see the Antichrist? The Antichrist. Through the story, through the imagery. All right. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. What does that sound like? Who's the hero of the book of Revelation? Jesus. But what image is given of Jesus? Anybody know what image is given of Jesus throughout the book of Revelation? A lamb who was slain. Jesus, the lamb who was slain. The hero image all throughout the book of Revelation. What is Antichrist? A mortal wound that was healed. The Antichrist trying to usurp what is his. All right. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? Is that not like language that's uh, being stolen from God? Who is like the Lord? There is none like the Lord. And they're using this language. They're stealing this language Um, And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Okay, anybody recognize anything from Daniel in there? The number, the 42 months. Very good. What else? The little. That's right. The little horn, the blasphemies of the little horn, the blasphemies of the little horn. All right, so, and it opened his mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. That is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Once again, imagery from Daniel. What did Daniel say? This, be, this, this beast will make war on the saints. And authority was given over, given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name... Has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Interesting. Interesting. And what did we just finish reading about? This beast who seeks to destroy you, Daniel, all the people of God who God delivers. Who does he deliver? Those whose names were written in the book of life. So we're getting these parallels here. We're drawing on this. 
So Temper Longman III, as a scholar, says this, just as the ideal king of the Psalms was grounded in the Davidic reality, but anticipated the messianic glory, and I'll tell you, I'll reword that for you. What he's saying is, when you read the book of the Psalms, there's this mess, glorious messianic king that keeps coming up. And, and, and he was grounded in, in, in the reality of David. In other words, this is David's son. He was prophesied to be on the throne. He is like unto David. And so he was grounded, grounded in a real person. He wasn't just an ideal. He was grounded in a real person. So in the same way, we get this Messiah figure in the book of Psalms with all this glory that's grounded in the person of David. So the wicked king of the end in Daniel is grounded in the Antiochian reality, but anticipated the horror of the Antichrist. What's he saying here? Look, that whole section when we're reading about Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes, and we know the utter evil he did and the destruction he did, this figure in the past. Antichrist is grounded in that. That is a real person who did real evil. And, the, and, and when we look at how horrible Antichrist is, he is the, grounded in the reality of those who have gone before him doing that same destruction type. Everybody follow that? We're not talking about, um, we're, we're, we're talking about real people here. Come on in. Ah. So the book of Daniel, um, God raises up and takes down human kings. Why? Because he is the king. His kingdom will destroy all the others and endure. And that's the hope of the holy ones. That's our hope. He will destroy all of the kingdoms. That's why he calls us to persevere. And what ultimately does that look like? It's being written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. All right. So we, we read this earlier. We see this, this end time picture coming out of Daniel. And it moves us into this, the fact that there are books. How many knew that there were books in heaven? You know, for somebody who likes books, that's like, I got something to look forward to. I like books, you know. I, for, for others, you need to know there, there's probably picture books, too. So that's how, <laughs> and there's probably some that will read themselves to you. So it'll all be good. Um, you know, there'll be books you can listen to. You know, books on tape. Um, so uh, I would submit they're probably living books. You could probably have a conversation with them. You know, who knows? But the fact is, the Scripture doesn't talk about just the book of life. It talks about multiple books in heaven. So uh, here's Revelation chapter 20. So then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. So there would be a time at the end when literally there will be a new heavens and a new earth. The, the, everything, the way we understand the physical is going to fundamentally change, but it will be physical. Um, and it says this, and I saw the dead. Great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. There is a book being written right now about your life. What's in it? Everything. Everything. And there is a time when we are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ... In this, this is going. This, in this, it's everyone, great and small, going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and that book's going to be open up and read. Now, it's fascinating to me, and oh, I'm not going to. That's a funny path. Not going there. So here's another one. This is in Psalm 139. 
This is when the book starts to get written. It says, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. Every one of what? The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Lord, in your book, you literally had written all of my days when I haven't even lived one of them. God has a book written for your life. You can live by it. You don't have to. You can choose to live by what he has written for you. You can choose to be your own Lord. Either way, it's going to be written down in a book which choice you made and at every spot along the way. This is, this is like real stuff. This is real stuff. So let me put it this way. Even if it's metaphor, what do I mean by metaphor? Even if it's like not a, a book with paper, the way we understand it, it I, I'm telling you it is recorded word for word. In fact, I would submit to you it's more detailed than a book with paper, not less. Because it gets down to not only the things we do or the things we don't do, it also gets down to what we think. And it gets down to not only what we think or we don't think, it gets down to motives, things we don't even realize often about ourselves. How do I know that? Because the Apostle Paul says, you know, I, I, I'm not, I, I don't submit to any judge on earth. Why? Um, because I don't even submit to myself to a judge. He says, because I can't properly judge myself. So who I submit to is God as judge. Why? Because only God knows what I actually mean. That's what he says. Now, how many are glad for grace? Now, how many are glad for, now how many begin to understand what grace actually is? So, there is a very specific book among all of these books. And this is the book of life. And here we see it back in Exodus, all the way back in the beginning of the Bible. This is all the way Exodus 32, 32. And we're going to look at a lot of places where this book comes up. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Moses, in interceding for Israel, is willing to lay his life down for his own people. Now, catch this. He's laying his life down in the midst of their sin. Not because they're so great. But they had committed a, such an atrocity against God, such a rebellion against God. God's about ready to destroy them and wipe them out. And what does he say? Lord, don't wipe them out. Take my life instead. Hmm. What is that a picture of? Now, the way he says it is, exchange my life in that book for theirs. If you don't save them, take my life. In other words, I'll, I'll take their punishment. I'll go with them. Wow. This is why Moses was considered to be one of the most humble men ever to live. Um, verse 33, but the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now, this should scare us. Because just because your name is in the book doesn't mean it stays in the book. I will blot out. Now, I know that messes with a lot of theology. And I, I don't think it's something we need to be afraid of, walking around afraid of. It's not something you earn to begin with. It's not about um, uh, uh, um, 
the, 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 you know, the old flower, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. God doesn't go up in heaven, he loves me, he loves me not. He's not counting our sins in that way. That's not what it's talking about. But what it is talking about is that when we submit and surrender our hearts to God, that's the beginning of a journey, not the end. And that we, and we are told over and over and over in the scriptures to not allow our hearts to heart. Now, I don't know where that line is. I don't even pretend to know, but the Spirit does. I don't need to know, but the Spirit does. I've seen people who have gotten to what appeared to be completely hardened, and God turned their lives around. But I've seen other people who you think, you know, hey, they, they seem like it's going on. And the Scripture says, depart from me, for I never knew you. Right, so I'm going to give you two scriptures along this line. The first one is in, um, it's in the book of, uh, well, I'll do this one first. This one's in the book of Matthew. It's in Matthew chapter 7. And he says this. He says, look, he says, there's a path that leads to the book of life. He says, but it's narrow. He says, the way that leads to death, he says, now that's wide. He says, the, the sad and unfortunate fact is, Many people choose the wide path. That's their choice. God doesn't send anyone. God doesn't send anyone. He offers the alternative path off. They have chosen the path of death. Wide is the path that leads to death, destruction, and many are those who follow it. Narrow is the path that leads to life, and few are those that choose to follow that. So he offers us the path to life. Now he says this, a few verses down. He says, in that day, which day? Some at the day of judgment. Many will say to me, Lord, didn't I cast out demons in your name? Didn't I do mighty works in your name? And he will say, depart from me, for I never knew you, you worker of lawlessness. Now, what's fascinating, there is some, there is some uh, research that shows that that phrase, depart from me for I never knew you, doesn't actually mean he never knew them. What it means is um, it's, it's used by rabbis when a disciple is turned away from being a disciple. They're no longer a disciple. I never knew you. It's as if you were never my disciple. And what's fascinating to me also about this scripture is that this scripture doesn't talk about atheists or Buddhists or Muslims or Hindus. It talks about what looks like church people. That's what that verse talks about. Now, there's another there's another side to this this stone. Um. Or, or uh, uh, and Scripture does this. Scripture gives us this divine tension, right? It puts these two sides that we we need to uh, uh, um, wrestle between. And the other side is this. This is in First Corinthians, and it says this. It says, um, um, "I'm a wise master builder, and I have laid a foundation. There's no other foundation that can be laid except the foundation that I have laid, and that foundation is Jesus Christ. There is only one foundation. To have the foundation of God in our lives, and that foundation is Jesus Christ." If we don't have him as a foundation, it's the only thing you can send. He is the rock. All other foundations are sinking sand. There's only one. Now, if we're on the foundation of Jesus Christ, now, every one of us are going to build 
on that foundation. That's what we build on. But we are going to have different building materials. Some are going to use wood. Some are going to use hay. Some are going to use stubble. Some are going to use gold. Some are going to use silver. Some are going to use precious stones. Now, here's the thing. This is what Paul says. Now, what's going to happen, this is what's going to happen. What we built on that foundation is literally going to be presented before God. And remember, the scripture says our God is a consuming fire. Imagery given of God over and over and over is a throne of fire. There is a river of fire that flows from his throne. And it says that this house that we've built on this foundation is going to be tested with this fire. And so you could have the foundation of Christ and actually be in Christ, but if you spent your entire life building with nothing but wood, hay, and stubble, literally everything you did in building up your life will be burnt and gone. Standing before God. If you spent your life building with gold, silver, and precious stones, then, then everything you did will be preserved eternally. Eternally. And he says, now look, he says, the fact that you may be standing, that, that you're standing on the foundation of Christ, even if everything in your life was burnt up, you still are entering into salvation because salvation isn't about your works. It's about the foundation of Christ. You will be saved, but you will be saved through fire. You just won't have reward. Can you imagine getting to that point and realizing what I could have done with my life? And then going, what did I do with my life? These books are important, guys. These are real books. And so I don't know where this line is. Like I said, I don't know where a heart is that outwardly looks like it's doing everything right, but inside has no relationship with Christ. Versus someone who has a relationship with Christ, but they're building their life with wood, hay, and stubble. I don't know where that is. I don't need to know. We all need to be constantly examining that in our lives. Because if we're trying to find where that line is, we're already asking the wrong question. If we're trying to find, how far can I get and I'm still building with, uh, you know, maybe a little gold and a little silver? How much wood, hay, and stubble can I mix in with my precious stones? Where's that line? How much is it where it's really coming from my heart so that I'm, I am one he knows, but really I can embrace the world at the same time? See, if we're asking those questions, we've already, we've, we're already in the wrong place. We, we've missed the whole point of the, of the teachings. Psalm 69 says, let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. Once again, here is getting blotted out of the book. Interesting. In the scriptures. Now, uh, Isaiah 4. He who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. So there's this, there's this recorded for life. Notice, they're using this language of being written in a book. Ezekiel. 
My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and who give lying divinations. They shall not be in the council of my people, nor be enrolled in the register of the house of Israel. There's another reference. False prophets, false visions, lying diviners. Nor shall they enter the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am Yahweh Elohim. Nevertheless, this is um, in Luke. Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So Jesus sends out the disciples, and the disciples are traveling around, and they're doing miracles in Jesus' name. They're praying over people. People are getting healed. They're, they're, they're speaking to, to demonic uh, beings in people's lives, and people are getting delivered. They're going, oh, my goodness, this is so amazing. They're having these incredible spiritual experiences. Over and over they're doing this. Lord, we're casting out demons in your name. Lord, we're doing mighty works in your name. And Jesus says, don't celebrate that. Celebrate your name is written in the book. I know you. I know you. I know you. You see how Matthew and Luke are going together? Look, should we celebrate those other things? Absolutely, we should celebrate them. They're amazing. They're exciting. They're fun to see people set free. They're fun to see people delivered. It's huge. It's, we should be seeking that. It says seek spiritual gifts. And we should be doing that. But the rejoicing comes in the fact that all of that happens because of the grace of God. I have entered into relationship with my Lord. All of that happens because he's so good. Mm. Philippians 4. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. See, Paul just just writes about this matter of fact. I mean, he just adds this in his letter. He's just writing along. It's just a, it's a hey, look, you know, celebrate them. They're doing awesome things. And they're helping out. Yeah, all of us have got our names in the book. So right now, open, look in the front of your Bible and see if your name's written. And I'm just joking. Did you write your name in the book? And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. There's no second generation Christian. There's no second generation Christian. We all have one father. We are all have to make a choice and decision to be born into him ourselves. We, we do not choose for, our, for others. I am not a Christian because my parents were Christians. I can be introduced to Christ. I can be one to Christ. I can be sanctified by my parents until I am at the place of making choices and decisions myself. But ultimately, every human being has to make that choice for themselves. That's why it says the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Revelation verse 3. And the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Isn't that amazing? Who will never get blotted out? The one who conquers. Who will never get blotted out? The one who conquers. How do we conquer? By trusting him. We conquer by persevering in faith with him. 
by persevering in faith with him. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Talking about the beast. We just read this. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Now, I'm going to just say this here because this is the way the ESV writes it. There's an alternate Greek wording of this um, that says everyone whose name was not written in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Um, And so there's discussion among uh, Greek scholars as to which way is the best way to word it. But the point being is there's a book of life. It's, it's, the life of, it's, the, it's the book that's based from the lamb who was slain. And this is something God's been intending and planning from the beginning. The beast that you saw, this is in chapter 17 of Revelation, was and is not. See, every time you read about Christ, he's the one who was and is and is to come. You read about the beast, he's the one who was and is not. And is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it it was and is not and is to come. He's a false Christ and they're blinded and deceived. Chapter 20. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were open. We talked about this verse, but I, I left a part out of the verse earlier. Now I'm going to put the whole thing together. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. I saw all, great and small, and books were opened. Then another book was life. You see, here's the thing. We are all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul tells us this in Corinthians. It's not in apocryphal language. It's not in prophetic language. It's plain as day. We all, Christians, believers, are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Our lives are going to be examined. We already talked about it. Paul said it's it's in multiple places in the text. We're not examined because God's there trying to, okay, you did this good. No, you did that. No, you did this. Okay, it's not that. It's going to look at the, the flow of our lives. Did we submit? Did we worship? It will lead to reward. But Jesus tells us in parables over and over again. I gave everyone a mina. What did you do with it? Oh, you got ten? You get to rule ten cities. Oh, you got five? You get to rule five cities. I mean, that, that, that is going to happen. There will be a real judgment for what we've done. This, see, here's the thing. And this is the mistake that we make as Christians. One of the things that mistakes that Christians make is that, well, this life is temporary. This life doesn't count. This one, it's that life that I'm looking forward to. No, this life counts. This is the one shot we got to actually live Christ. This is the one that counts. This is the one that matters. It is it was appointed unto man once to live and then the judgment. Hebrews 9:27. This is the one that matters. What is our affection? Okay? And so that's going to be judged. That's going to be tested. Because Jesus will show, you, show us with the holes in his hand and the spot in his side exactly what his affection was. That's you. That's his affection. You're his affection. Now look, he's, now again, this, this judgment for Christians is not, this, is not God wanting to condemn. It's all in love. I mean, the, the overwhelming presence of the love of God will be present in that moment. Because, because the only reason we could be standing there is that love, that grace. 
Look, I, I had a, I had a, a word view. I was having a conversation earlier. I'll, I'll try to explain this again. Um, we, 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 we miss how great God's grace is, right? We, we, we lose how great this grace is. Um, we try to put it this way. Here's the picture we have. The picture we have, anybody ever seen the, the scale of justice? You know, justice, the lady justice is blinded like this, and it's a scale like this. And, and the picture is, is that lady justice weighs um, the things that are happening. And here we borrow that imagery. And when we borrow that imagery, this is what we do. We think that we, as humans, are morally neutral. And by being morally neutral, that means I can do bad things and I can do good things because I'm in the middle. I'm morally neutral. And so if I do bad things, that goes over here. If I do good things, that goes over here. And hopefully I can have more good things than more bad things. And that is a 100% wrong picture. Why? Because you and I aren't morally neutral. What do you mean? Why were you created? You were created to image God. That's not morally neutral. You were created to be love. That's imaging God. That's why the two greatest commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. You were created to be love. So every moment you do something that's not loving, you have violated your very created purpose. Oh, dear God, when I think on that, I literally fall down and weep. Talking about me. Every time you violate that, you literally violate your created purpose. The reason why we need missions in the world is because there's no worship in the world. That's the point of missions, to lead others to return to worship. That's our created purpose, to worship God. So if I was created to be love, then loving doesn't benefit me when I do it in the sense that I earn something from it. I'm simply doing what I'm supposed to do. Everybody follow that? When I love someone else, all I'm doing is what I'm supposed to do. When you go to work and you do what you're supposed to do, do you have a right to go to your boss and say, hey, give me a bonus. I did what I'm supposed to do. No. You get a bonus for when you do over and above what you're supposed to do. But I'm here to tell you there is no good thing that you can do that is over and above what you're supposed to do because you're supposed to represent the very goodness of God. What greater thing can you do? Now, stick with me. This is going to make sense, more sense in a minute. So let me give you a proper image. If my life is a scale... And now I do something I shouldn't do, and I violate God. Bam, it's on this side. Now I'm going to go about trying to find some good thing that I can do, something that, not that I ought to do, but that I can do that's over and above what I ought to do to make up for this bad thing. Well, I'll go do that. No, I'm supposed to do that. I'll go do that. No, I'm supposed to do that too. I'll go do that. No, I'm supposed to do that. In the meantime, I put something else over here. Bam. And I put something else over here. Bam. And meanwhile, I'm running around trying to find out what good thing can I possibly do to make up for this. There is nothing you can do to make up for this because anything you might do, you ought to do. How can you get a bonus for something you're supposed to be doing anyway? You can't. That's how great grace is. That's how great grace is. That grace can take this side 
and wipe that out as though it never existed? Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. That's the Lamb's book of life. Not something I earned to get in there. Not something as a bonus in my life because somehow I was super whatever. But he loves us that much. If love doesn't love us, we have no chance. If love doesn't overwhelmingly love us, if God doesn't say, in my mercy and love, I forgive you. In fact, I want you. We got nothing. And so we're going to stand before that judge. And he is going to look at all our lives. And here's what's going to happen when we look at all of those things that were wood, hay, and stubble in our lives. We're going to see the effect of those things and how they hurt other people. And how they hurt his name. And how they didn't carry out our fullness of our purpose. And our heart's going to break and our heart's going to weep. Not because we feel guilty. Not because we feel shame. But because we realize how short of love we could, we fell and could have been. But you're also going to see all the ways you built with gold. You built with silver. You built with precious stones. He's going, well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done. Enter into your rest. You will be ruling over this. You'll be participating in this. There will be great work he has for us at that. This is all in this. This is what this is talking about. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. It's there, folks. It's there. This is our shot. This is our chance. Verse 15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book, he was thrown in the lake of fire. This is serious. Let me tell you about two books. Israel wanted a king. But the way they wanted a king, it wasn't wrong that they wanted a king. The way they wanted a king was wrong. They wanted to be like other nations. They didn't want to be the way God wanted them to be. And so Samuel was all offended at what they wanted. And God says, no, 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 that's that's fine. We'll give them what they want. So they got the leader they deserved. They got Saul. Led the nation into disobedience. But God said, you know what? I do have a king for them. This is a man after my own heart. In the book of Acts, it tells us that David accomplished the purpose of God in his generation, and then he rested. (laughs) He built with gold, silver, and precious stones. Did David build with a little bit of wood, hay, and stubble, too? (laughs) You want me to tell you the stories? But what what did he really build? He built with this faith and trust in God. And, And when the wood, hay, and stubble were brought to him, what did he do? He fell on his face in repentance. He continued to return. He continued to return. He continued to return. And God says, that's a man who wants my heart. He doesn't say that's a man who's perfect. 
that's a man who wants my heart. He continued to return, even in the darkest, even in the worst. And he says, you know what, David, I'm, I, I have a, my book. Here's my book for you. You're going to always have someone on the throne because you're living out my book for you. There's actually ten promises. Four promises came to, to, to pass during his lifetime. Four came to pass in the lifetime of Solomon, his son. And there are three that are fulfilled in Christ and, and to be fulfilled. There's ten promises. But there was another king. God had written a book for him too. He said, listen, Jeroboam, Solomon screwed up. And I'm taking, I'm taking ten of the tribes away from Solomon. How did he screw up? He got to the end of his life and he let his heart go after other gods. And they went after other gods because he allowed his wives to move his heart away from him. And instead of being the one who influences his family to me, he allowed others to influence him away. He wasn't faithful. And so I'm taking ten tribes away from him. And here's my here's what I'm offering. This is what's written in my book for you. You be faithful like David was, and you also get to have somebody perpetually on the throne. Had it in his book. God had it there. And he got blotted out because he allowed fear to drive him away. He set up two golden calves in the north and began the first of every single king in the north being wicked. Every single one following in his footsteps. Every single one. Take it out of the book. God offered him. Here it is. Revelation 21, verse 27. But nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the new Jerusalem. This is the, 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 uh, the new heavens, the new earth, where there is no more temple. Why? Because the Father and the Son are seated on the throne. It's only one throne and both are seated. Figure that one out. It actually says in the text. It says that one throne and, it's, and it both are seated. Now we come back to Daniel. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since the, there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. So what follows the Lamb's book of life? The resurrection in the end time. In, the, in this story that we're reading here from Daniel, what follows after the Lamb's book of life? Daniel 12 talks about resurrection. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And next week, we're going to jump into talking about resurrection. It's fascinating to me as we close out this week. 
I was actually planning on covering the Lamb's Book of Life and Resurrection this week, but I'm looking at the clock, and I don't want to rush through Resurrection. So we'll just stop early tonight, and we'll take a couple of more weeks to finish instead of one. Is that all right? Can we do that? I don't want to overwhelm with too much. I think we need to stay marinating what we've got covered so far, and then we'll cover the next one next week. We'll go over Resurrection. But here's the point. This whole Lamb's Book of Life is about Resurrection. And notice, everyone is resurrected. The good and the bad. Everyone. Some will be resurrected in order to be thrown into the lake of fire. Some will be resurrected to literally shine like the brightness of the sky. To literally shine like the stars. Now notice here, who are those? This is we're wise. The wisdom of God is foolishness to man. And those who turn many to righteousness will shine like the stars. Those who have embraced believing loyalty. Amen? All right. So that's going to be for next week. That's where we'll go. Right now, let's just take a moment and and just pray. Father, I I, am... I pray for us tonight that as we stop and contemplate your word, we would contemplate the fact that you have given us the opportunity to walk into a grace that is so amazing, that is so great, to be washed and cleansed, to have wiped out, canceled, the debt that is against us and all of its legal demands. Lord, that is a grace that is too amazing for me to count, to consider. And you have brought us and set us on a foundation that is perfect, a foundation that cannot sink, a foundation that lasts for eternity. And right now, even as we've studied your word together, even as we're praying in this moment, your Holy Spirit is calling us wooing us, loving us to surrender our lives to Christ. To embrace your grace and to surrender our lives. That through us you might build with gold, with silver, with precious stones. That through us we might be conduits of your love, your kindness, of your mercy, of your justice, of your faithfulness. Father, I pray that you would, that if there is anything that we need to confess before you tonight, any ways in which we have fallen short, not ways in which you are causing us to feel guilt and shame, but ways that you're convicting us because you want us to be free from it. There's any ways in which we are convicted, any ways in which we are not reflecting your love. Father, I pray that we would confess it tonight. We lay it at your throne. We allow you to wash us and cleanse us by your blood. We contemplate the greatness of your grace and we would literally allow our souls to be lifted up into it. Renewed, restored. Give us hearts that desire to return to you. Not one time, 
Not just in this moment, but live a continual life of returning. Because you're that good. You're that good. You're that humble that you accept us on a continual basis of returning. We bless you. We thank you. We praise you. May it not be about what we've heard in here, nor about what we've prayed in this moment. But may it be about the fullness of your spirit filling us and us carrying it out that door. Wise to win souls, seeking to turn others to righteousness by imaging the God who loves us and his love. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Ryan, let me know when we're turned off and we'll have some conversation in here. I know there's some questions. We've got some extra time tonight. So we can really explore some of these things we talked about. I know there's questions. If you're listening online and you have questions, please send them in. I would love to hear from you. And uh, thank you for for, uh, participating with us. In Jesus' name, bless you all.